We rejoice in the power of the cross. Lord, we stand in awe of the fact that you stood in our place. You took your sin upon yourself and and you died in our place. You absorbed the full wrath of the Father for us. And we echo with Paul, we're not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Although the cross seems like foolishness to the world, as Paul declared, it's it's the power and the wisdom of God. So we just sang this song with gusto and with conviction because we know it by experience that we are here today because of the power of the cross. And so as uh, we look into your word, Holy Spirit, give us guidance and direction. Open our eyes to see the wonderful things of your word. Apply the truth to our lives. And may you be exalted and lifted up at the end of this service because of your word and our obedience to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying in my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of God. There is an irrevocable and undeniable truth in life. And I'm sure you will concur with this. As believers, we are not exempt from suffering and pain. You wake up one morning and notice a lump, suspicious lump, and you call your doctor in panic. And after a series of tests, you find out that you have cancer. Or the marriage that you thought would last for a lifetime has been gutted because of the infidelity of your spouse. Or or the job that was going so well that you would work there the rest of your life. The company was sold to another company and, and you're out of a job. Or maybe your hopes and dreams for your kids or your grandkids, that they would walk with the Lord and is shattered as they reject Christ and walk away from the church. We could go on and on and on. The reality of the pain and suffering that we as believers are not exempt from. And David would certainly echo that truth that pain and suffering are part of the believer's life. Like I thought about this, if we could somehow uh, interview David and uh, ask him some questions like this question, what was the most painful experience, David, you ever experienced in your life? I wonder how you would answer that. Uh, we might say, was it was your experience with Saul when you were a fugitive all those years and you were on the run? Was that the most painful experience in your life? 
Or, or was it the constant onslaught of those, those pesky Philistines and the other enemies just kept attacking you, attacking you, attacking you? Or, or David, was the most painful loss for you is when you lost that baby that was born to Bathsheba because God disciplined and judged you for your adultery? I don't know how David might answer that question, but I suspect that on the top of the list, or near the top, would be the background of this psalm. We're reading the psalm, the historical setting, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Psalm 3 is a psalm of pain and suffering. Now, why was he being tracked down by his own son? Some of you, are, or maybe of you are aware of the story, but let me give you the Cliff Notes version to kind of give you the background of the psalm, because it's pretty important. The seed of rebellion for Absalom against his father started years earlier. Read the Old Testament, you realize that David's oldest son, Amnon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. And David was angry, but did nothing. But Absalom... Another son of David, after two years of harboring bitterness, seething with anger, killed Amnon, his brother, in revenge. Remember the story, Absalom fled into exile for three years, and he wanted to come back to Jerusalem to reconcile with his father, but finally David reluctantly invited him back into Jerusalem. But the relationship was already strained. In fact, David refused, if you remember the story, to see his wayward son for two years when he was in Jerusalem. And finally, they met face to face. But the damage was already done. Absalom's resentment over his father's refusal to reconcile over the years led him to launch a plan to court disgruntled people in the kingdom, offering them as a more sympathetic and worthy leader than his father was. In fact, the Bible says, literally what was happening, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Finally, after four years of this, working the crowd, Absalom headed with his coup to Hebron, declared himself as king, and sentenced his father to death. So David fled for his life with a small band of, of supporters and family, all of his servants and their little ones. They hastily grabbed what they could take and took off toward the wilderness to escape. And we're told in the scripture that David followed them, this little band of, of supporters, weeping, walking barefoot, with his head covered in shame. How bad was it for David. Well, Jim Johnson, his commentary in Psalms, on this particular psalm, writes, this flight was the bone weariness of a forced march, the stabbing pain of betrayal. Who can I trust? Where can I go? Is there a spy in my camp? Will one of these men turn me over to Absalom, my son? So that's the background of the psalm. David penned this psalm as a fugitive, wondering if he would survive another day. His very own son was out to kill him. Talk about the pain and agony and heartache. Yet in this psalm of eight verses, 
David gives us some answers of how to face our major crisis in our lives, as he did. In fact, I see three basic things that you and I can do. The first one is very obvious in the, in the text of the psalm. We are to plead to God when we're in this crisis. Notice verse 1. O Lord, how... And notice the phrase many repeated twice. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying in my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. He was open and honest before God. There was a desperateness in David's situation. Let me ask you a question. It's rhetorical, but are you desperate this morning? Are you desperate for God to break through in your life and to deliver? And David was. Now, I don't know about you, but I think it's true. We don't tend to pray and depend on the Lord unless a crisis hits us, right? Call a prayer meeting at the church. How many people show up? Probably not many. Maybe your church is an exception. We started a Friday night prayer meeting. Uh, our new youth pastor started it. I'm encouraged that of uh, hundreds that are there, we're up to 40 now, but there's not that sense of urgency and, and crisis. But when it comes to a crisis in our own lives, when it, it hits us like a tsunami, you know, whether it's health crisis or family crisis or work crisis, we just, we just plead to God, right? But we should pray first. And that's what David did. He Desperateness fueled his prayer. I love what J.B. Greer says about prayer. Listen to these words. He says, the core of effective prayer isn't discipline. It's desperation. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're defeated, if you're weak, if you're insignificant or insufficient, there's good news, he writes. You're in a perfect spot to pray. All you need is me. How needy are you this morning? Well, David was needy. I mean, <laughs> he's going to lose his life. His son was attacking him. He's going to lose his throne. But how much more are we needy this morning? We need God. Now, we see this. David spills out this need and his desperate to the Lord in three ways, three phrases here. He starts out in verse 1, How many are my foes? David's saying, I'm outnumbered. I mean, it's not even close. The whole nation literally turned against him except for these, his few supporters. I, I'm outnumbered. I'm, I'm desperate. Next phrase, many are rising up against me. I take it in this phrase, it's, it's sort of like, not only is there many against me, I'm outnumbered, but I'm overwhelmed. Everywhere I turn, there's people against me. And then, the third phrase, many are saying in my soul, there is no salvation or deliverance for him in God. In essence, David, David's saying, I'm being taunted, I'm being mocked. But foes, there's, there's David simply saying, why do you trust in God, David? Why do you trust in God? God has abandoned you. All that you've done in the past is come home to roost. Your very son is going to be the heir, and you're going to die. One author said David was probably having doubts about himself, 
about the validity of his calling at this moment, about his capacity to rule, about his worth as a man. Absalom's treachery, treachery inflicted a death of humiliation the human soul was never built to endure. It was emotionally crippling, threatened to destroy David's credibility and his confidence as a man of God after, his own heart, after God's own heart. But David starts this psalm in a precarious state. Desperate, overwhelmed, outnumbered, taunted by others who said, give up. There's no rescue. We're doing it all. Ever been there? I have. It seems like there's no hope. You know, will God really help me? Is he going to be there? The doubts begin to arise. And maybe some of you have walked in here this morning with that feeling. Maybe you haven't expressed it to anyone, but you say, I can identify with David. I am desperate. Desperate and needy. And the second principle that flows out of this, even though David pleads to God in his desperateness, laying out before God everything that's going on where there seems to be no hope, the second principle is so important. We must perceive the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality. I don't know about you, when you go through a trial, and I've gone through trials, and uh, perhaps you're going through a deep trial now, isn't it easy just to focus on the trial? kind of be locked in, laser-focused, or maybe it gets some sleep at night, but the next day it's still there, it's still there, it's still there. Well, what David does, he, he realizes that's not the focus he needs to have. There's an ultimate reality that he needs to focus on behind the reality of the trial. And who's that rea ultimate reality? Brothers and sisters, it's God. It's God. Look at verse 3. Amazing. He says, But you... Oh, Lord. You see the contrast there? He's, he's just laid his cards out on the table before God said, I'm in a desperate situation. I'm outnumbered. I'm overwhelmed. I'm being taunted. But you, God, oh, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to focus on, again, the reality of our circumstances and what we're going through and forget the ultimate reality of God. I, I don't think I'm the only one. It's so easy. That's, that's a fault mechanism. And to fail to see that there's a God behind this. He says, but you, O Lord. So what David's doing there, and he's teaching us, we need to have this radical reorientation to focus on God. He, he jolts himself back to reality. He's just laid the cards out on the table. God, I'm desperate. I'm finished. You're even taunting me, but you, O oh Lord. This is what we need in a crisis and a trial, isn't it? My brothers and sisters, we've all been there. We're so focused on our circumstances and difficulties that we fail to look up to God as the reality, the ultimate reality. Now, I see three things here that, that God is to him in this psalm as he refocuses his gaze off the reality of the circumstances he's in and focuses on God. There's three things that surface that I think are helpful to you and to me from this passage. The first thing, 
He says, you are a shield about me. Verse 3. In other words, first thing that David realizes about, about God and the ultimate reality, he's simply saying, my security is in God alone. My security is in God alone. God, you're my defender. You're my security. You're my protector. You're with me. Isn't that a great? I mean, we know that from Scripture. God is our refuge and strength, abundantly available in time of need, Psalm 46.1. Well, we know that. But, but David is confessing that as he shifts his focus from the circumstance to God. And brothers and sisters, I can assure you from Scripture, as I assure my own heart, there is not a millisecond in your life or my life where God is not protecting us and with us. Amen? So easy to lose that sight of that. And, and by the way, Absalom was his enemy. He was going to lose his life, potentially. He was on the run. And here's the truth of Scripture. We have an enemy, don't we? The enemy called Satan. Out to get us, destroy our faith, and tempt us. Who can protect us? And who can help us? The Bible says in, in 1 John, greater is he that is in us than what? He that is in the world. He's a shield. David says, yeah, I, 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 but you, Lord, are a shield about you and my security. I, I can't even secure myself, but you secure me. You protect me. Second truth about God as he reshifts his focus. He says, you are my glory, my glory. I think what he's doing there, he's referring to the honor and glory given to him by the Lord in anointing him as king. One commentator put it this way, David may have been driven from his palace, but his glory was still intact. For God had bestowed honor and glory on him as the king. In other words, what David, as he refocused his eyes on God, he said this, not as my security in you alone, but my worth is how, God, you see me, not how other people see me or how I even see myself. See? You're my glory. God hadn't pulled back his anointing on David. His identity as king was still there. He didn't become not a king, even though Absalom had made that claim. Now, you might be saying, or I might be saying, well, that's good for David because he said, he's a king. <laughs> How does this work for me? How? I mean, I'm being pummeled, I'm being discouraged, I feel overwhelmed. And sometimes when I'm in a trial, I just feel about this tall, like a little ant about to be squashed, I'm in shame. How does this work for me? Well, David's saying, my, my identity is in how God sees me. Well, here's the great truth of the gospel. I've mentioned this before in different sermons, but it's worth coming back to. One of the most important questions you and I can ask of ourselves as believers is, who are we in Christ? Who are we in Christ? What's our identity? Well, think about this. In the midst of the trials and sufferings that, and the pain that you and I might be experiencing, 
Some things don't change. We are still forgiven by God. We are adopted by God. We are children of God. We are blameless before him. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Nothing's changed. If I define my, my future and my identity by what you say about me or I say about you, or I define my identity by what I say about myself or what the enemy says, no, 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 my identity is in Christ. And your identity is in Christ. What a glorious truth. You know, the older I get in ministry, and by the way, I qualify for that senior thing. I'm over 50. <laughs> a little bit over 50. <clears throat> John Amaya is a little older than I am. But I, the older I get in, in, in life, the more I just relish the fact of who I am in Christ. And what that means for me when I face the difficult times that my status does not change. And David's saying, God, you're still my glory. I'm still king. That hasn't changed. There's a third thing he, as he shifts his focus on God, not on the circumstances, he says simply, my future is guaranteed by God. He says in that third phrase, you're the lifter of my head. Now, we use that term sort of in a figure of speech a little bit. Uh, you see someone a little bit, somebody a little despondent, right? And they kind of got their head down. And so, you know, we, we do this with our kids sometimes. They kind of lift their head up, you know, and uh, be cheerful. Well, the context here, David is simply saying, God, I'm on the run right now, but I know you're going to lift up my head. I'm going to be back in the position of king. My future is guaranteed by you that Absalom's not going to win this and that you're going to raise me up and you're going to fulfill what you had promised me. You're the lifter of my head. My future is guaranteed by God. I love the, uh, the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Listen to how she writes these words, how she prays these words. Says, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the Lord are, pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on him he has set the world. What Hannah was simply saying is, I was down, I was barren, I had no children and God blessed me and he's lifted me up. And brothers and sisters, he guarantees he will do that for all. Guarantee of a glorious future. I'll come back to that in just a few moments, what that glorious future looks like. But you see what David's doing here? He pleads to God. He lays out the desperateness of the situation. He says, I am desperately in need of you. And then he turns to God and says, but you are Lord. You are Lord on my shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. And then that next phrase, yeah, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Now, there's a difference, isn't there, between praying and desperate praying, isn't there? Sort of kind of rehearsing the request and crying out to the Lord. 
See, for David, prayer was not perfunctory anymore. We're not suggesting it was before, but he, he's desperate. It's real. It's spurned by a crisis, and, and he's perceived the reality of who God really is as his shield, as his glory, and the lifter of his head. And so his prayer life is an overdrive. He says, Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you. We could uh, take some time this morning. We can't do that, but uh, have people just share share when we confess that to the Lord. I said, God, Lord, I desperately need you. I need you. I need you. That's where David is, and he prays those words. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Now the question is, how did he answer it? Because he's still in this crisis, right? He's still on the run. He just wrote this psalm. This is, how did he answer it? I mean, he didn't answer immediately. I mean, the answer would have, he would have preferred probably is that, that Absalom would have shown up the next morning and say, Father, I have blown it. I shouldn't have done this. Will you forgive me? Let's reconcile. And you're the king, and let's go on with life. But we know that didn't happen, right? So how does he answer when we don't necessarily get relief from the pain and suffering that we are facing. Well, I see three things that surface in the next phrase you hear that three needs that God can meet in your life and my life that does not necessarily mean relief from the trial or the pain and suffering. First of all, there's a need for inner peace or rest. Look at the next phrase there. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. You know, my wife and I, we, I guess as you get older, you ask this question. Maybe some of you don't ask the question. We get out of bed in the morning. Hey, how'd you sleep? <laughs> you know, different answers, different times. I ask David the question. How'd you sleep, David, last night? Slept like a baby. <laughs> really? You slept like a baby? Are you kidding me? I mean, you got Absalom, your son, about to kill you. You're on the run. You're outnumbered. But you see the phrase there, I woke again. What's that phrase? For the Lord, what? Sustained me. I, I find myself praying that prayer regularly when I get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> and that's for any age, really, right? The Lord sustains us. But David's saying, hey, God protected me overnight. He, he sustained me. I'm up the next morning. I've got another day, another day to live. The the fears are real, and they can dominate me, David said, but I'm not going to allow them. He, I woke, and he sustained, sustained me. I don't know about you, but I know when I'm in severe trial or pain, what's the one thing I usually lose or tend to lose is sleep. Or I can't get to sleep for a while. Anybody been there? A few of you. You aren't being honest. But really, right? I mean, sleep just, just, it's just hard. It's on our mind, right? For some of us, maybe we take a sleeping pill or whatever just to make it through. And I'm not talking about insomnia for other calls. I'm talking about just the pressure. But David said, listen, I've seen who God is. I've laid it out before him. I know who he is. He's a shield, a protector. He's, he's the lifter of my head. I slept. The need for inner peace and rest. Jesus will give that to you as you seek him. 
Second need, the need for courage. Well, fear can paralyze us, can I? Can it? David woke up the next day, but things didn't change. Absalom was still after him. That's true for many of us. Some of you are in trials and pain right now, and you wake up every day, and it's still the same, still the same. You're not out of it. And so we need that courage. We get that fear rooted out of our lives. And see the next phrase there? He said, I will not be afraid of many thousands who have set themselves against me all around. Amazing. David, don't you know that, I mean, you're outnumbered, you're overwhelmed, they're taunting you. No, no, I've put my focus on God and who he is, and and now I have this courage, and I don't have this fear anymore. I'm not going to be afraid of the thousands that set themselves against me round about. Someone said this, fear is not the opposite of faith. Fear presents an opportunity for faith. So what are you and I fearing? What are we afraid of? You've had a blank, I am afraid of this morning. And then after that, I'm going to trust in God. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. Like David said, I will not be afraid of thousands that set themselves against me round about. So it's a need for rest and peace, inner peace, the need for courage that God provides answers for David. And then the third, the need for renewed confidence to believe confidence to believe that God will save him. In fact, it leads to a very bold, re-energized prayer, verse 7. I don't have enough time to get into this, but it's sort of a precatory prayer a little bit, but he says, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. He had this renewed confidence that in the end, he would be saved and restored as, as king back in his position. So when life is falling apart, when you and I are overwhelmed with life and struggle, we plead to God. He wants to heal. We must receive the ultimate reality of who God is. It shifts our gaze from the problem to God who will give us inner peace and security, courage to face another day, renewed confidence to pray boldly. But there's a third principle in this psalm, I think, that surfaces. Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. What's David doing this declaration? Well, he, you remember verse 2, he got the enemy saying, or his mockers saying, there's no rescue or salvation for you, David, in God. And David's now pushing back now at the end of the psalm saying, yes, salvation does belong to the Lord. See what he's done? He's he's pushing back in the taunts of of these men and women who are taunting him and saying, you will never be delivered from God. You're toast, David. You're done. Absalom's going to reign. So when he shifted his focus to the ultimate reality of God and saw God as who he really is, as his glory, his shield, the lifter of his head, It became the springboard for faith, replacing fear and renewed confidence that God would ultimately save him. And then he closes this short psalm in sort of a strange way a little bit. 
He says, your blessing be upon your people. Literally, the Hebrew reads, upon your people is your blessing. What in the world is David saying there? You see, he's proclaiming the third principle. He's proclaiming the bigger picture. He has a wide-angle lens. It's not just about him. It's about the whole people of God. We, we tend to take suffering in, in, in uh, sort of an individual, siloed kind of thing in our lives. And, and I think of the persecuted brothers and sisters around the world right now. I've been praying through the 50 countries that have the most persecution. Uh, Open Doors is a great app to get on your phone and just to pray for those brothers and sisters who are persecuted in Christ. But they're brothers and sisters. We're in this together, right? They're suffering. We're suffering. And so David's saying, i got a bigger picture here. It's not just about me. It's about the body of Christ. It's about the people of God. Your blessing be upon your people, not just me, but for all your people. Here's a tendency, at least in my life, and perhaps you've experienced this. When I'm suffering and going through pain and trial, I tend to get very insular and looking in and forget about the bigger picture that God's at work among the people of God. There's a bigger picture going on. So proclaim the bigger picture. Plead to God. Receive the ultimate reality of God. That's what David did in this. One more insight. The greatest need we have in our lives is not to be saved or delivered from trial or pain in our lives, as great as they are. In fact, the reality is that, that we may or may not be delivered in this life from that. Agreed? So what's our greatest need to be delivered from? Our greatest need, brothers and sisters, and I'm talking to you as believers, and some of you may not be believers here this morning, our greatest need is to be restored to God, our Creator, delivered from the penalty of sin, facing the full wrath of God, because we're rebels against God. So I go back to this last verse, and salvation belongs to Jesus, ultimately, doesn't it? He said, Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name among heaven whereby we must be saved. And so the ultimate deliverance that you and I need is not from the pain and suffering of this world. We will one day be delivered from that. The ultimate deliverance that you and I need and cherish, and we just sang about here that last song, is that we are delivered from the wrath of God. We are saved. Salvation belongs to Jesus. Hallelujah. So easy to forget that. So arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Many of you have prayed that type of prayer, being desperate, knowing that without Christ and his righteousness, we are sentenced to hell, eternal separation from God. But God and his grace has forgiven us, and so we can cry out, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the So let's gaze on the wondrous Christ. Why would this psalm ultimately reflect? Reminds us of gaze on the wondrous Christ who is the only one who can save you and me. 
And brothers and sisters, he has saved us, and he's given us a guarantee of a future hope from all pain and suffering. We will have pain and suffering in this world. This is a given. In fact, that pain and suffering may go with us right to the point of death. But here's the glorious thing. We have a guarantee of a glorious future, of a glorious final salvation. I, I read this passage many times to those who are sick, terminally ill. Just had uh, some of our older people in our congregation go home to be with the Lord and talk about the glorious future that we have. Revelation 21, 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We will have pain and suffering. David's given us some, some things that we can do as we plead to God and lay it out before him as we receive the ultimate reality behind that, that God is at work and he is our shield, our protector. And we proclaim the bigger picture that we are all part of this body of Christ and this suffering together, but the glorious future is going to be ours. He will ultimately save, won't he? Ah, what a glorious Christ we have. Salvation belongs to him alone. Now, what do you do with this passage? I, I walk away from this passage, but some of you may be here, and you're, you're saying, I'm really struggling. Well, pray this passage through. Sense what David's saying here about God and the ultimate reality. For those of us who may be on cruise control right now, no particular pain or suffering, we will one day face it again, guaranteed. And I need other believers to come in my life and encourage me, say, this is the truth of the gospel. This is who Jesus is. Salvation does belong to him. Don't lose sight of that. That's why we need one another. We need one another. Let me pray and get back. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for David's uh, testimony, even in the midst of a horrible, painful situation of his own son rebelling against him. And yet he was open to be honest before you. He was open to share the desperateness of his situation. He turned his gaze to you, O God, and saw you for who you really were and the needs that could be met in his life. And I pray that for brothers and sisters here, that the inner peace and security would be theirs. And then there's that glorious future, that salvation does belong to you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you for that. Our, our hope is built nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we have this glorious future where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering. So I pray for brothers and sisters here this morning that a maybe unspoken request, but it just hit me deeply that you would use this psalm to minister to them and open their eyes to see the truth of this psalm and apply it to their lives. I pray that for my life as well. In Jesus' name.